Amen. Thank you, Cindy. Great job as always. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week we looked at the first seven verses and especially the comfort that God brings. And I just want to remind you a little bit about Corinth and how we get to this point. Corinth was a prosperous city. It was right on the trade route, both of roads, but also water trade, water shipping and that sort of thing. But it was also very, very immoral. In fact, they, if you were called a, current, a Corinthian girl, it meant that you were a lady of ill repute. And to Corinthianize someone meant that you had made them immoral or they had become immoral. So keep that in mind when you think about the fact, here's a letter from the Apostle Paul to this city. Obviously, he's got a lot to say because there were believers in this city who were trying to live the Christian life, and yet all around them was very much wickedness, ungodliness, and especially this. There were false teachers there, and their greatest target was Paul. In fact, they, wanted to t- they basically wanted to tell lies about the Apostle Paul. They accused him of three things in particular. They accused him, first of all, of being such a gross sinner. That's why bad things always happen to him. You read Paul's letters, you found out he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, um, he was left for dead. I mean, there was just a lot of bad things happened to Paul. Well, these people had a good answer for the Corinthian people. They said, you know what? The reason all that stuff's happening to Paul is so bad is he's a sinner. He's, he's getting paid back from God. Well, we know better than that from the Apostle Paul. And we asked the question last night or last Sunday, why, does, why do bad things happen to good people? And my question for you was, who told you you were good? The truth is, the reason bad things happen is we live in a sinful world, and it's just part of the reality of the world we live in. There's bad things that happen. We have a hope. We have something to look forward to, which is glory, spending eternity with God in heaven where bad things don't happen anymore. But as long as we live here, bad things can happen, even to people like the Apostle Paul, and it's not necessarily the result of sin. second thing they accused him of is, is mistreating people, that he just basically was using people that uh, his relationships with people weren't good. And the third thing that they accused him of was lying. They said, you can't trust him. He's a false teacher. And you're going to see in this passage Paul's explanation uh, hitting right at the heart of what they said he was lying about. In fact, it's kind of silly what they're claiming he's a false teacher over this particular thing. But today's message is about godly character. And Paul in 2 Corinthians is having to some degree to defend his character. Well, what is character? Character is really who you are. In fact, what Paul talked about in verses 3 through 7 were those testing times, those afflictions that come. And it's during those times when character is revealed. We, we basically, when the pressure and the stress of life gets on, is when we kind of see what rises to the top of your life. And so the two things I want you to think about this morning as you listen to this message, first of all, is about God, Paul's example to us and how we're doing. How is our character? In other words, if somebody wrote about us or somebody talked about us, and by the way, people do talk about you, what would they say? The second thing I want you to see in the end of the message is this, what God has done, the promises of God, four things in particular that I hope encourage you that this is what God has done in your life. So let me, let me read the passage, verses 12 of chapter 1 through 24. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, 
But in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you'll understand until the end. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass on your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh so that with me there will be a yes, yes and a no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many are, as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is, is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as my witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. So the first thing that Paul does is explains his confidence. He says, here's what I'm boasting in. Paul said, I'm not boasting in myself. I'm boasting in the testimony of my conscience that here's how we've lived in front of you. So Paul's having answers critics, but it's not his critics he's interested in. It's his children in faith that are being lied to by the false teachers. And so Paul writes now what we believe is probably his fourth letter to the Corinthians. If you read 1 Corinthians, it talks about two other letters. It even talks about a letter he got from them. And so this is probably his fourth communication with them. It's only the second one we have in our Bible, of course, First and Second Corinthians. And so Paul loves this church. He's saying to this church, hey, what you're hearing about me, let me explain to you, let me tell you what the truth is. And so Paul says, we have this proud confidence, literally boasting of pride, in the testimony of our conscience. In other words, the witness of our conscience is we're clean. We're clean before you. The evidence giving, this idea of conscience is, is of knowing yourself. Paul saying, you know what? I hear these things that people are saying against me, and I've examined them in my own conscience, and let me tell you what the truth is. He said, we lived with you in three different ways. First of all, in holiness, and secondly, in sincerity. For Paul to say that, Paul is saying, first of all, listen, I'm not just somebody you heard about. If you read the book of Acts, you discover Paul spent 18 months in Corinth. He didn't typically get to spend that amount of time in any one city because he was traveling on his missionary journey. So sometimes he was there a matter of days or weeks, not 18 months. He was in Corinth for 18 months and established his church. I think that's why it hurt him so much to hear that people were saying things about him that weren't true. You ever have people talk about you? Well, if they talk about you behind your back, you're not aware of it, are you? But if you ever become aware of it, if, if somebody ever comes up to you and says, you know what so-and-so is saying about you? Well, first of all, they may be the one that started it. I've, I've learned that. I love it when people come to me and say, well, people are saying. And you come to find out the people that say it is the one you're looking at. But doesn't that disturb you to know that people may be saying things about you that, to other people? You think, wait a minute. They know me. I live among them. And Paul's saying, I lived among you for 18 months. 
you know that I wasn't a people user? You know that I wasn't using me, you for my own gain? You know that, that what, what has come upon me, you, you've seen the holiness of my lifestyle. Paul wasn't bragging here. Paul is saying, you know my purity of mind. In fact, really when he says holiness, it's the opposite of what he's being accused of. He's accused of being this great sinner. And Paul acknowledged, yeah, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. But I'm living now a holy lifestyle before God. And in sincerity, I love the meaning of this word. It's really two words put together. It's the word sunlight and the word to judge. So Paul said, I lived among you in sincerity, meaning if you hold me up to the sunlight, you're going to see who I truly am. In fact, the word became a word that they would stamp on the bottom of clay pottery. Why? Because some potters who were unscrupulous, if they got cracks in the pottery, would put wax in it. And that wax would last. It would hold water for a little while. Until it got warm. What happens to wax when it gets warm? It melts. And so they were stamped sincere. You could literally hold that pot up to the sunlight and see there's, there's no cracks here. This is what it appears to be. So Paul said, I lived a life among you in holiness and sincerity. And the truth of the matter is, Paul was saying, my life stands the test of the searching gaze of God. I recognize I'm going to face God someday, Paul's saying. And if he holds me up to the light, you're going to see what you see is what you get. So I've lived in holiness and sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom. What, what they're going to accuse Paul of doing here in a few minutes is promising to come see him, see them, and then he doesn't show up. So he says, see, you can't count on it. He's lying to you. Paul says, no, it's not fleshly wisdom. I, I, it wasn't my wisdom or insight. It wasn't my idea to do these things or to change the plan. This was all God. So it wasn't in fleshly wisdom but what was it the grace of god paul said my conduct was motivated instructed and informed by the very grace of god in fact that's how we conducted ourselves and especially towards you what's paul saying listen there was other churches that paul wrote to who were problem churches there were other churches that weren't problem churches paul could write very encouraging letters to some people to the church at corinth he had to write some pretty brutal things. He had, to, he had to call sin, sin in Corinth. And so Paul's saying, hey, I made sure around you that I was living a holy and sincere life, motivated and informed by the grace of God. Why? Because I didn't want there to be any miscommunication. I didn't want there to be a picture that I put in front of you that would lead you farther away from Christ. But I wanted a picture that would lead you close to Christ. And it's interesting, he said, we didn't write anything else to you but what you could read and understand. And that's the cool thing about Paul. When Paul wrote, you didn't have to try to get to the nuances of it. Paul was pretty blunt. In fact, I think Paul's letter to the Galatians, there was probably smoke coming off the pen because of his anger at what was going on with the false teachers in, in Galatia. And so Paul says, we've written nothing but what you can read and understand. In fact, I hope that you will understand it to the end. What does he mean? He's saying, I hope you'll understand this till it's finally fully completed in the end. He said, you did partially understand us. Now, get this. This is a letter coming from Paul to say, I wrote you some other letters. We certainly know about 1 Corinthians. And he said, you partially understood it. What is he saying? You've started to get it. You've started to put into practice what I've, I've instructed you to do in 1 Corinthians. But what's he also saying? You had not got it right yet. You had not fully got it. You've only partially got it. And so Paul said, for that reason, I intended to come and see you again. In fact, I was going to come twice. And he said in verse 14, he says uh, that you're our reason to be proud is also 
uh, you are ours also in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. In the day when I someday face Jesus face to face, I'm not going to have to say, oops. I'm not going to be ashamed to what I wrote you, to how I treated you, or how I lived my life in front of you. Now picture that. This is the Apostle Paul who's been accused by these false teachers. Paul's saying, wait a minute. One day we're all going to face the judgment. One day we're all going to stand in front of Jesus. And I just want you to know, I'm praying the same thing for you that you can pray for me, and that is, in that day, we're not going to be ashamed of the way we lived our Christian life. And Paul says, I've lived it in holiness, sincerity, and by the grace of God. The second thing, then, that Paul does is he explains his conduct. He explains his intention. Paul, starting in verse 15, says, in this confidence, okay, so go back to verse 14, the confidence is the joy that one day they're going to face Jesus face-to-face and he's going to be able to brag on them and they're going to be able to say what an influence he's been on them. In that confidence, I intended first to come to you. In fact, I was on my way to Macedonia. I was going to pass through Corinth on my way to Macedonia. I was going to spend a little time there. And then on the way back, I was going to come back through Corinth. And I knew that you were going to help me on my way back to Judea. Paul knew that he could count on them to help and in fact, the word really means to not just aid me, but to accompany me a little way. So they, Paul knew not only are you going to help fund my missionary journey, but you're probably going to travel with me a little ways to get me back on my way to Judea. In fact, if you've ever looked at a map of Paul's missionary journeys, by the time we get to the second and third missionary journey, he's traveling great distances that took months and years to complete because it was a long ways from Judea. You couldn't hop on an airplane. There were times he used a boat. That's how he became shipwrecked. It was very dangerous. But a lot of it was just walking from town to town. He'd stop in this town and spend a little while, stop in that town and spend a little while. So it took a while to get there. And Paul said, I was coming knowing that you're going to be able to assist me both to get to Macedonia but certainly to get back to, to, to Judea. So that was my intention. I wasn't vacillating. That's what he was accused of. Paul said, I wasn't vacillating. In fact, the word literally means to, to take lightly or to make a joke of it. I wasn't being fickle. It wasn't light in weight. I'm not a flip-flopper. I'm not wishy-washy. Plans changed. Did that mean that Paul was a liar? No. Paul's saying, this is what I intended to do. But I was prevented by the Lord from doing it. And he's going to tell them in a little while why he didn't come. But Paul said, it was a God thing, the reason I didn't come to you. You ever changed your mind? You ever been on a trip where plans changed? That's what Paul's saying. When I was in seminary, a good friend of mine talked me and my wife into flying from Fort Worth, Texas, down to San Antonio, Texas. Brand new airline had come out. It's called Fort Worth Air. Have you ever heard of it? There's a reason you've never heard of it. It didn't last real long. They only flew to three locations. They flew to San Antonio. They flew to Waco. Or no, to Austin. I think they flew to Austin, San Antonio, and somewhere in Oklahoma. But the first three days of their business, for $10, you could get on an airplane and fly to San Antonio. So we get to the airport, and we kind of knew it wasn't even the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. It was the Fort Worth little regional airport. We looked at this plane. They had a, they had a machine hooked up to it that's probably normal if there's any pilots here. The machine was called a Revit. I thought, they're revving up this plane. It's kind of like there's a hamster in there or something that's going to get on this wheel and get us down the runway. Then they came on and said, now we're going to dim the lights for takeoff. And the thing that I should have tipped me off to get off the plane was when the stewardess came on and said, thank you for flying on Fort Worth Air with nonstop service to... Now, they only flew to three places. But obviously she was asking somebody, where are we going? 
Austin, Texas, with continuing service on to San Antonio. So we get up on our way to San Antonio. Long story, but the point I want you to get is this. We get to Austin, Texas. We start coming down out of the clouds. We can see the lights of the runway. We're about to touch down, and all of a sudden, the, the pilot throttles back up. He had missed the runway. Plans change. Aren't we glad that the pilot didn't say, not nope, schedule said i got to land. This is the best I can do. I'm getting close. You know, close works in horseshoes and hand grenades. It doesn't work with airplanes. You don't want to just be close. <laughs> you know, there was an airline that one time says, you know, their motto was, we get you there. And then they had a wreck. Somebody said, well, they get you almost there. Well, that's kind of what Paul was experiencing. He, he saw the lights of the runway, but God said, that's not where I want you to go. And he's going to tell them in a little bit why he, it was really for their benefit that he didn't come to them. But Paul said, I'm not vacillating. I'm not wishy-washy when I intended to do this. And he said, do I purpose with my own purpose? And what they were saying to him is, you can't trust Paul's yes and no. He, he may say yes, yes, but what's going to end up happening is no, no. And Paul says no. In Christ, it's all yes. If I'm doing what God's commanded me to do, it's yes. And all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. But what they were teaching the Corinthians is, when he says yes, you don't know if it's yes or no. You don't know if you can really count on that. So if you can't trust him in his travel plans, how can you trust him in his theology? Isn't that kind of silly? That the best they could do against Paul is to say he's a false teacher because he told you he was coming and he wasn't able to come. Well, he explains to him why he didn't get to come. Now, now keep in mind, again, this isn't like hopping in the car and driving 15 minutes to somebody's house. In fact, one of the things that northerners make fun of southerners is when they say, I'm, I'm going to try to come by to see you. If, if a southerner tells you he's going to try or she's going to try to come by to see you, probably means they're not coming. That's just, that's just the way it is. All right? Have y'all figured that out? My wife, I love it when my wife says, I tried to call you. I said, well, why didn't you? Well, she means she did call me. I just didn't answer. Well, you didn't try to call. You did call. I just, you know, it went to voicemail, okay? So Paul said, here's my intention to come to you. And if this is the best you've got to declare I'm a false teacher, listen, challenge me on the word of God. Don't challenge me on my travel itinerary that God changed. And by the way, this wasn't a 15-minute trip. This was months in the making. The letter got there in front of him, ahead of him, and they knew Paul's on his way. And they find out later Paul couldn't make it, and he'll explain in a minute why. So Paul's conduct is explained. And then lastly, my favorite part, is just God's promise. Paul comes back to the fact that God is faithful. Paul could say, yeah, you know what, my travel plans changed because I'm not in charge of my travel plans. I was doing obediently what God had called me to do, but one thing you can count on that is always yes, and that is this, God is faithful. Our word is not yes and no. In fact, what you've heard preached by us, and then he names specifically me and Silvanus. Most of you have heard the word Silas, same guy. Paul and Silas became travel companions. When Paul went on his first missionary journey, who did he travel with? Barnabas. Okay, son of encouragement. They divided and went kind of their separate ways, and so Silas became the one that would travel with Paul. Who was Timothy? Timothy's the one that First and Second Timothy were written to. Timothy was one who would consider himself Paul's child in the faith. Timothy was with Paul when he wrote the letter of Second Corinthians. And quite often Paul would send him as his ambassador to places. Oftentimes Timothy was one that would deliver these letters to these churches. 
And so Paul said, you, you don't have to question what we've preached to you. It's been the faithful preaching of the Word of God, whether it's me or Silas, Silvanus, or Timothy. And it's not yet, no, it's not yes or no, it is yes in Him. And as many as are the promises of God, they are yes in Him. Through Him are amen. I love Paul using the word amen. We use that a lot of times when somebody sings or plays or the end, or sometimes during the message. I've actually preached and people said, amen. It means literally, so be it. It doesn't mean, I wish he was through. <laughs> amen means, so be it. Let it be. Yes, God. And so Paul says, all the promises through Christ are yes in him. Through him, our amen to the glory of God. And then here's the four things that he said that God's done. And he didn't just do this for Paul, folks. He did this for the people Paul wrote to. And if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, here's four things that are true about what God has done in your life. If you haven't taken notes yet, get these because they're good. First one is this. He has established us with you in Christ Jesus. The word established established literally means to stabilize or to, to make constant or unwavering. This is what happens at salvation. When Jesus Christ steps out of heaven into your life, because you've trusted him as Lord and Savior. You have become established with God. These things cannot be divided. This is what unites believers. So Paul, first of all, says we're united in Christ. We're believers. You ever seen churches that were not united in Christ? I, I, for 10 years I traveled full time and saw a bunch of churches. And I saw some churches that I thought, you know what, this church is united over softball. Is there anything wrong with softball? No. But when it becomes the thing that's at the center of the church, it can be wrong. You know, you walk in and all you see is like the trophy cases of all the championships they won. And you don't spend much time there before you realize you don't hear a lot about God, but you hear a lot about softball. There's a lot of things that can try to unite churches. It can be personality. It can be geography. It can be sports teams. It can be common interest. But those things can also divide churches. I've also often pictured a united church as kind of a wheel with spokes. And the hub at the center of that wheel has to be Jesus. If you put anything else at the center of that wheel, it will end up dividing the church. Because churches find some incredible things to argue about. I've shared this, this story before, but I'll share it again. In Citronelle, Alabama, I went on a mission trip to this church. And there were, it basically had two sets of pews, a center aisle and then walls over here. The church held about 100 people. We were doing a mission trip when I was a teenager. And I noticed there were names on every pew. Every pew had a, little, had a little plaque down here with the name of somebody on it. And I found out there were basically two families in that church. There was the Weavers and the Rivers. The Weavers all sat on this side of the church. The Rivers all sat on this side of the church. And after looking at them, they all looked like they were probably related. I'm pretty sure they were all from the same family. It's just somebody had a speech impediment. And River came out with her. And so that side of the church, and they didn't like each other. The Weavers were feuding with the Rivers. And I thought, y'all are probably cousins. But you can't be united. Why? Because they weren't united around Christ. They were united about, one reason we don't put names on pews. You ever been in a church that has names on pews, and if you sit in that pew, they'll tell you to move? We had a lady in a church a long time ago. I can't mention it because there may be somebody here from there. <laughs> She'd come up with this wooden pocketbook. And say, I guess you know you're sitting in my, in my pew. You know, we had people leave the church, never come back because of this dear lady. <laughs> you thought she was going to hit me with this wooden pocketbook. So there's things that can unite churches 
But they won't unite him for long if it's not Jesus Christ. So Paul says the thing that unites us is our common faith in Jesus Christ, and he has established us in Christ. Second thing is he has anointed us. God has anointed us. Literally, he has consecrated us for religious service. This word literally meant to smear or rub with oil. When they set aside ministers in the first century, and it it happens today, they would anoint them with oil and say, we're setting you aside for ministry. Well, let me tell you something. If you're a child of God, you've all been set aside for ministry. It's not just the preachers. You know the old joke, preachers are paid to be good, the rest of you are good for nothing. (laughs) No. We're all called to ministry. And you're called to that ministry until God calls you home. So Paul says not only has God established us, he has anointed us for service. So hear me say this. If you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, God's got a ministry for you. And he's already anointed you for that ministry. Go serve him. Third thing that he did, he has sealed us. The word meant more probably to them than it does to us. One of the things they did with seals is when a king wrote a letter, put it in an envelope, he'd take a candle and he'd drip some wax on the envelope until the wax built up. And then he would take his signet ring and put a stamp on it. And what that meant was, I'm sending that to you. As long as that seal was unbroken, you could trust the contents of that envelope to be from who the seal said it was from. So you could trust the contents. So Paul's using that illustration, that analogy to say, he has placed this seal upon us. We have been sealed in Christ. So understand the security of that. Paul's already had to write them earlier in the chapter about the comfort they needed in the midst of trials and affliction. So Paul's saying to him now, understand who you are in Christ. He secured us. He's established us. He's anointed us. He sealed us. And then the best one is this. He gave us the Holy Spirit as a pledge. The Bible tells us that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. So the day you trust Christ as Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God comes to live in your life. He's given us His Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. In fact, the literal meaning of the word pledge is part of the purchase money. Some of you are in real estate here. If you're going to buy a house and the house costs $200,000, you don't typically come with an offer and say, here's my check for $200,000. You, you come with a check for a few thousand dollars, and what do we call that? Earnest money. That's the literal meaning of what this word is. God has given us the Holy Spirit as earnest money. Of what? Well, when you're buying a house, what's it a promise of? I'm giving you this money now so that once we get our ducks in a row, we're going to close on this house, and we're going to give you the full amount. It's a promise of the full blessing that is to come. So, folks, listen. The day we trust Christ, we don't go to be with God yet. Why? Well, one thing, he's anointed us for ministry. We've got a thing to do on earth. He'll let us know when he's done with us. But the Holy Spirit has been given us as a pledge. It's earnest money. Other illustration could be used as an engagement ring. Men, when you ask a, a woman to marry you, one of the things we do is we give them an engagement ring. What does that to say? It says, I intend to one day walk down an aisle and take an oath before God and everybody that I'm going to love you. And I want to be married to you for the rest of my life. So when God gives us the Holy Spirit, it's, it's earnest money. It's a pledge. It's like the engagement ring that says to us, one day you're going to spend eternity with me in heaven. And the Holy Spirit is just part of that pledge. In fact, Paul, same writer in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, says this. He says, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, 
you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Same concept. Paul says, he's, here's your pledge of your inheritance. You've received the Holy Spirit. It's earnest money. It's a promise of what's coming. As good as that is, it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's just a promise of what God intends fully to fulfill for us when we see him in heaven. And so then Paul becomes a name dropper. He says, I call God as my witness to my soul. It doesn't get any stronger than that. Paul says, listen, if anybody wants to impugn my character, here's my witness. God knows the truth about me. So I call him to testify as a witness to my soul that to spare you, I didn't come again to Corinth. What's Paul saying? Paul said, I intended to come to Corinth, but because I heard that you hadn't fully implemented what I'd already told you in 1 Corinthians, I didn't come immediately to Corinth. I wanted to give you a little more time. I was giving you grace. So according to God's grace, I did that to spare you. That was his reason for not going. Paul said, I actually avoided coming back through Corinth because I didn't want it to appear that I was the teacher showing back up from the principal's office and I was about to chastise you. Paul says, I did it to spare you in verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. Last thing, last thought is this. The reason Paul didn't go to Corinth was to spare them. But Paul says, here's how I think about you. When I think about these four things that God's done, he's established you, he's anointed you, he's sealed you, he's given you the spirit in your heart as a pledge. Folks, those are things to be joyful about. And so it's because of that. Because we didn't want to lord it over you, because of your joy, that you would stand firm in your faith. So at the end of the chapter, I hope that it becomes more of an encouraging thing. Let's transfer that to us as we close this morning and re-ask those two questions. First of all, what about our character? Could we say like the Apostle Paul, you know what? God could bear witness that the way I act, the way I conduct myself in front of you, is a clear and good representation of who God is. If the truth about that is you can't do that, then today's the day to come to God and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry, there are times that I recognize that people would get a mixed message from just watching my life. I mean, it's amazing the Apostle Paul could say what he could say, and none of us are the Apostle Paul. There's still times that we mess up. But here's what God's doing in our life. He's chipping away at everything that doesn't look like him so that one day we look just like him. The second thing is, do you understand what God has done? How God has secured you in Christ. How he's sealed you. How he's given you an anointing for ministry. And ultimately how he's already given you the Holy Spirit as a promise of future things to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the writings of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, even how we can apply it to our life. It's not just about what he wrote a couple thousand years ago. But, Lord, the truth of that passage applies to us. So, God, thank you. God, thank you that you're making us into men and women of character that would rightly represent Christ in the world. And thank you also that you have secured us. That we don't have to question that. Part of our discomfort will not be that we've wondered somehow if we're not secure in Christ. Thank you that you've sealed us. Thank you that you've given us a ministry and by that an anointing. And ultimately, thank you for the Holy Spirit 
It's a promise. He's a comforter. He's a reminder of what you've taught us. But he's also a promise of what's coming. Thank you for that truth. In Christ's name, amen.